When I was 14, one of my friend's older brothers ended his life. Four years later, another friend lost his brother the same way. Neither death was openly discussed in my home or at my school. Back then, you didn't discuss mental illness or factoring in someone else's grief or pain. You carried on. And years later, a father that I knew who had always seemed to be the life of the party died by suicide. I couldn't come to terms with having a life so bad that the only way to escape was to escape from it. I started to gain a better understanding when in October 2020, I covered the topic of suicide in an interview with Mark Hennig. At age 15, Mark's mental state was at a point where he felt he had only one choice, his life or death. He chose death and ended up on the wrong side of an overpass, a person a few inches of concrete looking down a tunnel that he hoped would end his pain. By chance, two people were there. One yelled, jump, you coward! And the other, a man in a light brown jacket, wrapped his arms around Mark and saved his life. He was the first one to interrupt me. Uh, and then it was only after a little while of him talking to me about just the most banal things, you know, uh, my pets and my my hobbies and school and things like that, that it almost felt like that rigidity, that prison uh, that my mind had been trapped in started to soften and dissolve a little bit. That experience showed Mark he did have a choice. To live his life like the man who saved him, versus the many that baited him. And Mark today runs a boutique mental health consulting firm. Today I'm about to learn more. It's a heart-wrenching story. Steve Phillip, a father who lost his son Jordan when he ended his life. But from grief and pain rose a mission, a life calling to eradicate suicide. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman. Steve Phillip, welcome to uh, Chatter That Matters. Tony, really good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And I really want to thank you up front because we're going to get into a subject of your son taking his own life and this calling. But I just want to say that I honor and respect you for sharing and doing what you're doing out there because from your grief and pain, you're trying to create this zero suicide community. You're on a mission to really find a way to help people. And I think that you're coming from such personal circumstances and consequences that I just honestly admire you for uh, for making this your, uh, which is turning out to be your life mission. Yeah, thank you. You know, it was, it was not a journey that I would have would have chosen. Um, it's one that's probably carried me along as much as I've carried it, I, I would think. Um, I'm not unusual um, in that respect. Many people I've met who similarly have come out of such a loss, and particularly to suicide, who are doing some amazing things. Um, but it is often very much down to those who have experienced such tragedies to to go out there and, and make the difference and affect government and industry and uh, communities. Um, unfortunately, it seems you have to go through such a life experience in order to create the change that's needed. Well, I want to start the show taking me back to the morning of Wednesday, December 4th, 2019, Talk to me about your family, your work, and your passions, because I really want to just set the tone that at that point in your life, life was going pretty well. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, none of us knew that uh, only a few months after that particular day that COVID would hit us as a global pandemic. Um, um, but uh, to the uninitiated amongst us, we were, you know, I was on a journey that I was running a successful, small but successful consultancy business, worked in the world of social media training and coaching for some pretty big companies over here and some overseas, and had my sights kind of set on the next 
five years, a, a man of maturing years, let's say, who, you know, I looked at my retirement or semi-retirement um, and uh, what that might look like and, and just engaged with a consultant that was going to help me take my business through to an exit strategy looking into 2020 and, and, and beyond. You know, my life was, was going pretty well in all respects. In the background, um, I had my son, uh, Jordan, and my daughter, Danielle. Jordan had been diagnosed back in 2015 with clinical anxiety and depression. First time he'd had a clinical diagnosis of uh, issues that were clearly manifesting themselves probably some years before, really, and, and, and maybe helped explain some of the characteristics of Jordan as, as an individual. But he was somebody that was a highly functioning adult. He was 34 years old when he took his own life in December 2019. Uh, he had a, a good job, worked with an organization known as the Independent Office of Police Conduct over here. He was an officer there and he would look into any complaints against the police from the general public. That's the role of the IOPC here. So, you know, pretty stressful job but an important job. He had a, a loving partner, Charlotte, um, his girlfriend, um, his beloved little cat, Tabby, um, who he doted on um, enormously. He adopted from a neighbour that could no longer uh, care for the cat uh, a year or two earlier. Um, and this huge circle and network of friends. Um, in fact, as I later learned, there were four separate networks of friends, some of them from his time in Canada, interestingly enough, when we lived there. Um, but friends from his university days, from work, from school, um, and, uh, and different backgrounds, really. Uh, and all these networks, unusually, didn't know each other. Um, and that was kind of very typically Jordan. Each one of those networks had someone who considered them to be Jordan's best friend. High empathy guy, often the guy who would be there for his mates if they were struggling, often on a night out uh, on the town with his mates for a beer. They'd look back over the shoulder to see where he'd gone. Jordan would be the guy who was talking to the homeless fella on the street um, and, uh, you know, just detached from the rest of the group. And he was the guy apparently at all the uh, weddings that were coming up for all his friends of that age who had the dance moves. He was the cool guy on the dance floor. I knew nothing of this as a dad. You know, you don't see any of this going on at all. Um, I remember him doing a great Michael Jackson impression when he was about five years old, and that was about about it. You know, this was a guy that people looked up to uh, and pretty well said as a good-looking, just over six-foot-tall guy, this is who I kind of aspire to be. This is who I want to be. And they would look up to Jordan in, in, in many respects. And yet, as I've come to learn with, with many others who experience depression and anxiety and other forms of mental health illness, um, there's a lot going on behind the surface that we, we don't see. Do you think a lot of what he was in terms of this sort of peacock and exterior was to sort of put up a wall to prevent people from getting inside and knowing who the real guy was? Or do you think he, with his best friends, they had a real sense that things weren't always great? Yeah, I, I think he 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 would have worked very hard at presenting his best self, um, I think, most of the time. But Jordan was who he was. I think he, you know, most would say, I think, if not all, that he was authentic in that respect. He, you know, you, you, what you saw from Jordan with his humor and all the other things I mentioned is, you know, it was very much Jordan. But I think he did have to work very hard at certain aspects of even getting together with the family. You know, when we look back and say, why is it always so hard to get Jordan to come around for a meal or a barbecue or to go and see his sister? Um, 
you know, I think there were struggles going on that in, in certain situations he he just was struggling with himself and maybe didn't want us to see that, the those that were closest to him. Listening to one of your many interviews, and I'm going to put some links in the podcast notes because I think you're a wonderful, honest storyteller. And you talked about almost with a smile that, you know, you had a great relationship with him. You were at a whiskey tasting event a week before you were watching one of your favorite bands, Hootie and the Blowfish. So, I mean, there was a good, strong father and son bond. Yeah, I, I think there was. Look, you know, um, Jordan only lived 20 minutes away from me. We didn't see each other every week. Um, again, he, he could be quite a private person in that respect. But we we did have a, a great relationship. I think one of the highlights of our relationship, without doubt for me and for him, was was very early on when he was first diagnosed with clinical anxiety and depression. I booked um, a trip to Italy and the Amalfi Coast, just for he and I to go to. Um, and that was to celebrate his 30th birthday. And I heard from his his mum. His mum and I are, uh, got divorced in 2005, but keep a good, close relationship. And, you know, she told me how Jordan had said in the days leading up to that trip, he just wasn't really looking forward to going. Uh, and that was Jordan at that point. He just didn't look forward to anything. And yet when he got back, he said it was probably the best trip he'd, he'd been on. We, we you know, had a fantastic time going out for a beer, doing all kinds of – going to Pompeii, you know, seeing the ruins, doing all that kind of stuff, um, eating out, looking over Vesuvius across the bay. You know, it was just a time that I think we both look back on, you know, with huge affection – and, you know, out of everything we've been through, you know, to have that memory to, to hold on to and that experience that we were both able to go and do that is is, is really a precious thing. And just the, the swing from I'm not really looking forward to it to the trip of my lifetime, it was must have been magical for him to sort of get some of that darkness away and look at the world so differently. So talk to me a little bit about Charlotte, his partner. They lived together. At that time, um, Charlotte had a base uh, probably around about 35, 40 miles south of where Jordan was living. Okay. Because um, uh, she was studying at the time and in her final year to become a clinical psychologist, um, interestingly enough. Um, so she would come and stay with Jordan. Uh, so, yes, they would spend time there. But she had her own base as well. This was really the situation that developed on that day on December the 4th. But, you know, coming back to, to Charlotte, you know, she was someone that was a huge support to Jordan during those most difficult days, I think, because of her experience already at that stage and her knowledge of psychology, she was able to to be there. Um, I would assume, and I'm assuming a lot of this because I wasn't I wasn't there to to offer support, you know, in in terms of a level headed way. On that day of December the fourth, um, Jordan had not been particularly well, or at least told Charlotte he wasn't feeling particularly well. I think Charlotte herself had maybe got a little bit of a cold or something. Uh, I think he had quite a bit of work to do and made some excuse that maybe it was better if Charlotte went back to her flat and her apartment. He kind of needed a little bit of space or whatever the excuse was. And she didn't really think any more of it, um, but decided to, yeah, to go back to her base. And it was only the following day when she was trying to message him, getting no response um, by lunchtime unusual by this time not to have received anything at all that she decided to get in a car and, and drive up to to Jordan's house. And as she's driving up to Jordan's house, I just want to backtrack a little bit. So I put these two stories together because the day before that, I understand you guys were exchanging texts and, you know, as he was pushing Charlotte away, he seemed to be pushing you a little bit away that day too, right? Yeah, it was interesting. You know, one, one of the challenges and, you know, there'll be a lot of 
parents particularly that this might resonate with that you know I had a busy a busy life I was traveling up and down the country doing this consultancy work and um and life gets busy sometimes and I don't think we make enough time for the really important stuff and it's a bit of a cliche we hear it a lot but I'd um driven probably a couple hundred miles from uh, a talk I'd delivered um, in the northeast of, of England. I was driving down to the Midlands to a place near Birmingham uh, in central uh, England, a place called Solihull, uh, to deliver a social media workshop to a large automotive group the following day. So when I arrived at my hotel the night before, it was getting on a little bit late, but Jordan and I had agreed we would we would have a chat. We, we knew he was struggling. He'd been going through some difficult weeks at this time. So we were making, I think, between us a bit more effort to make sure we, we spoke. Um, and I just messaged him and uh, just said, look, Joe, let's, let's have a chat um, uh, tonight. I'm just going to go down and get a, get a bite to eat. Um, and then, you know, sh- shall we have a, a call? Um, and um, he just said, look, no worries, Dad. You know, in fact, I'm feeling uh, a bit tired. He said, I think what I do, I'm just going to take myself to, to bed. Uh, just have a chilled evening, get myself to bed, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll catch up another time. Don't worry. Words to that that effect, and, and you know, I still have those WhatsApp messages saved, and and you know, um, they're there, and I have publicly shared them uh, before via. How, how many times have you read them? Do you think since then? Uh gosh, many many times. Not so much recently, but of course, occasionally I refer to them through slides and through my talks. Um, you know, I do share them and. and yeah, unfortunately, see them often on a very large screen in in front of me uh, there, and and those were the last exchanges between Jordan and I on that evening of December the third in twenty nineteen. The next day on the fourth, Charlotte's worried. She she heads over to see why he's not responding to any messages, and you get a call that absolutely tears you into pieces and everybody that loved Jordan. Yeah, Charlotte had arrived at the house, um, and um, you know, obviously, I've talked this through with her. And uh, you know, Jordan's front door had kind of frosted glass, if you like, and you know, she said she looked through that frosted glass, could make out a figure of someone standing there, um, and um, just felt instinctively something wasn't wasn't right, and. Uh, uh, Really worried by this time, went round to the back of the house where she can now see what she she saw, and you know, in utter distress, really, a neighbour came over to help, and then another neighbour who was a trained nurse, and they broke into the house, they broke in through a window, um, and tried to resuscitate Jordan, but it was it was well too late, really, by by that stage. Um, and you know, all this was going on while I'm finishing off delivering a, a Facebook workshop in. You know, to this automotive group, I leave at uh, just after four o'clock um, uh, that afternoon and get into my car. It's around about four twenty, um, well, it is four twenty um, that I get in my car. I'm about to turn the ignition on to drive three hours back home um, when I get the incoming call from Charlotte. And um, you know, not unusual maybe for Charlotte to call me, but it wasn't a regular thing. So I, you know, will have answered that phone in my usual upbeat way and only to receive just this distressed girl just apologizing over and uh, oh god um you know over and over again just saying i'm sorry i'm sorry jordan's killed himself because there's so many people dealing with mental illness in their families what goes through your head knowing that 
you know, is it immediately, do you feel, I mean, it's shock? Is it grief? Is it replaying every moment the last couple of weeks? Like, and what advice can you give to people? As you said, when life gets busy, you know, like, like, oh, I'm just looking, I'm trying to imagine you as a dad at this point, you know, hooting the bluefish the week before and Charlotte giving you this phone call. I mean, it's just, how do you cope? Um, well, one of the things, you know, I've documented this in, in stories I've shared, you know, very publicly that, you know, that call is, is logged at two minutes duration. Um, I checked this very specifically for an article I, I published not long afterwards. Um, you know, I remember 15 seconds of that call, uh, to be honest, Tony, and uh, the rest of it, I have no idea what we said. No idea what was said at all. Um, and then it's, it's kind of numbness. I, I remember sitting there in the car thinking, well, what do I do? What, do I drive home now? What do I do? Instinctively, I got out of the car and walked back into the building I'd just come out of. Um, I saw the receptionist there and just waved me off with a big smile on her face, uh, probably about 15 minutes earlier by this, this stage. Um, she looked at me with a big smile and then looked at me again, and that smile changed. And, uh, you know, they did an amazing job. That they, they kind of took me in. They got my main contact, um, the client contact. They had to come down and got me into a medical room and kind of looked after me. They offered a driver to come with me to drive that three and a half hours back and he'd get a train back home or whatever. And it's funny how you go into very practical mode sometimes in these things, um, situations. But I remember just thinking, I can't have this poor guy sitting next to me with all the phone calls I'm going to have to make and the conversations I'm going to have to have. How can I put someone through that? It was maybe an odd odd reaction. But I, I in the end, after 45 minutes or so, I, I felt I, I could manage that drive uh, back home. And, um, and that's what the journey was like. It was heavy duty traffic on the roads at uh, tea time at a rush hour here uh, on a busy part of, of England on the motorways. And there were countless calls um, as I was driving home. But one of the calls that always stands out in, in, in my mind is that I got another incoming call from Charlotte's phone. And this voice at the end of the phone said, hi, Mr. Philip, this is uh, Sarah. I'm the female police officer with uh, with Charlotte at the moment um, and uh, we're at the house and um, I just need to ask you uh, if you've got a funeral director and, and that was her opening statement there was no really sorry Mr. Vett, how are you doing there was none of that at all it was very professional very do you have a funeral director and I remember in my head thinking does everyone am I supposed to have had one kind of ready waiting just just in case any of my family suddenly died and and uh, she said you know if not would you like us to arrange one and and I just said well no I, I, I don't have a clue just yeah could you arrange one she said okay yeah, le yeah leave that with us I'm you know with Charlotte now how about Jordan's mum like, I mean the phone calls you made I mean how does mum and your ex-wife find out how did how, that must have been a tough phone call that is a real blur for me I have to say um you know trying to think of the the order of the calls that I then had to make with without question the first person I called was my wife Jordan's stepmom <sighs> yeah um yeah, I can hear a reaction now. That was tough. That was tough. Um, yeah, did I did I phone his mum next and his sister Danielle? So I'm just interested in how you suddenly have to be the leader of the family and make all these calls, and you're not pretty well since that moment. I've been in what I would call doing mode. Whether it was dealing with everything from that moment of making the phone calls to all 
the events that had to take place immediately afterwards from coroners to, you know, visiting Jordan in the mortuary to organising the funeral directors to the funerals to, you know, suddenly publishing an article very pu- publicly, really, about our experience, which which led almost as it feels within a matter of weeks to me deciding that I was going to do something very different with my life. It does seem that from the moment of those phone calls, I haven't stopped doing things. And I heard you've kind of used, you know, term once, um, you know, about, was it therapy? It maybe is, you know, it's been described as a deflection technique, maybe. I, I'm very conscious of that there may come a day where I suddenly just collapse in a heap and, and the enormity of it all, fully hits me you know i'm fully prepared that that might be part of my life at, at at some point but i have literally been in that kind of male type behavior perhaps you know got to get on got to lead things it's my responsibility the british stiff upper lip mm. and, and yes yeah, so some of that british stiff upper lip but maybe maybe not so much that i think just maybe this belief that it is down to me to to sort these things you talked about an article you wrote and i'd love you to read if you would a couple of paragraphs because I won't do justice to what I thought is just such a moving statement of about not so much the cause of someone taking their own life, but the aftermath of people dealing with their lives. Could you read that for us? When someone takes their own life, especially someone who was loved by so many as Jordan was, they don't mean to hurt us, but hurt we do. I sometimes think if we could have shown Jordan a movie of the aftermath of what we did, maybe of what he did, maybe he would have stepped back and and not gone through with it. Sensibly, I understand that severe depression is not something you can reason with. The reality is that when you take your own life, someone, most likely someone dear to you, will be the first to find you and they'll live with the image of that for the rest of their lives. Your family will have to come to your house afterwards. They will have to clear away your unfinished bowl of porridge and the last glass of water you half drank. This article was published initially on LinkedIn um, just three weeks after Jordan's death. And it was my way, I think, of letting off some steam. And, and, and I didn't know anyone else had been through this experience. And part of it was to share what we were going through as a family um, and, and say, look, is anyone else going through this? But, but also importantly, to get a message out to anyone else who might be thinking of going down the same path Jordan did and just to say to them, look, this, this is, this is what we're going through. Do you, would you want your family or your loved ones to to go through that? And then somewhat of naive thinking back in those early days, but that was really the response I was looking for and the response that I did get in fairness. But I don't think that's naive at all. I think that is that is the reality. And then every relationship that you've had with people that love Jordan has to change. And the first thing is, how's Charlotte? I mean, she was that first person. Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, the the deep answer to that is we, we'll never really know. But you know, the the positive and and out of this has come you know a lot of positive things. Um, uh, and you know, Charlotte, uh, we kept her very close to us in those early days. Her family, her parents lived quite some miles away in the south of the country. Um, so we brought Charlotte very much into into the family um, very early on, and uh, you know, I think that was that was really important. Um, after a period of time. She revisited her studies, that final year of studies, and and became that clinical psychologist. And in Jordan's note to her, because he left a note 
to Charlotte and he left a note to myself and his mum and, and his sister Danielle. Um and I'm paraphrasing here slightly, but but you know, one of the final lines, you know, to Charlotte from Jordan was to say, You you will be the best psychologist there is, or words to, to that effect. Um which which was lovely. Um I, I'm pleased to say, and it was a, another one of those little bumps in the road for us that that uh, Charlotte in the last year has met someone, lovely guy. Um his stepmom and I have, have got to to meet Mike and um um in fact we're going around for dinner with them in a couple of weeks um to see them. Um difficult situation for him. You know, she's found you know someone now and her work and her career are taking her in a in a really positive path forward and you know it, it, that that is a difficult moment for all of us for obvious reasons i would think but just so happy that um <sighs> yeah just really happy for her that she's going to be able to to have that life that she deserves she'll she'll never forget jordan she'll never forget what's happened you know that that will live and and i can't imagine what that was like i was fortunate not to experience that moment. I got remarried and my wife lost her husband uh, and she's convinced he brought us together. So maybe Jordan up there is, has brought, as who knows, has brought them together. And how about Danielle, right? Is your daughter? Yeah, that's right. How, how, I know Danielle, they had a special relationship and he would confide in her and into words that really just talked about how hard it was for him to get a, a foothold or a toehold into life. How did she come to terms with all of this? Did she feel that she had done enough? As you said, when this happens in a family, it is it is a village. You know, one of the things we talk about a lot is talking. Uh, you know how important it is to talk about these issues, and uh, and yet, you know, I know there are. You know, we've come together as a family. We've stayed very close. Um, my ex-wife has this fantastic, beautiful relationship with my current wife. You know, they're like best friends, which is not something you see happening uh, all that often. Um, but as a unit, we we've stayed very close together. We still have this very special WhatsApp group amongst us, which Charlotte's a, you know part of. Um, but Danielle. Um, has never really talked in depth about it. She, to understand the dynamics as well, at the time her youngest son was three years old, my grandson. Um, that day, he had to go to bed. He had to be read a story. He had to get up for school. You know, all these things, life had to kind of carry on. And Danielle had to carry on being a mum right at that moment. She really never got the time to to really grieve properly, I don't think, um, at all. Um, and it is a subject that we, we haven't really talked in depth about and how she's doing. Um, when we discussed counselling, I know she's she's quite a private person again in many respects and has decided that isn't something she feels is, is right for her at the moment. And, you know, we, we respect that um, as well. She joined me at the Jordan Legacy in 2021, uh, having been a teaching assistant for some 14, 15 years. Um, and with literally no experience at all, kind of took over our social media and does an amazing job. But every so often what she'll do is she will share her own posts, not very often, but the, in those moments, kind of Danielle comes out and some of her thoughts and feelings come out, um, and whether she might listen to this now and be smiling, I don't, you know, or or cringing, I don't know. But um, you know, I think in those moments, some of what is going on, I see manifesting itself through you know the beautiful writing she shares 
not enough, I think, on social media. And Jordan's mom, you know, you talked about, you know, it's a good relationship that you have. They're all part of WhatsApp group. How does she keep busy? How does she deal with it? I mean, you, you just dove in and just kept doing things. What, what does she She was saying in her own words, she has used an, an avoidance strategy. She has hugely struggled with this. Um, no, no question uh, about it, Tony. Um, interestingly, again, for context, um, Jordan's mum had been a senior mental health nurse, uh, for getting on for 25 years. Probably had more of an insight into what was happening with Jordan and his mental health than any of us had concerns, I think. Um, and I know those times now that I reflect upon, um, where she would call me to say, look, I've been messaging with Jordan or speaking to him. I'm, I'm a bit concerned really about him. And I would maybe say, well, I'll be messaging with him. He kind of seems okay. But, uh, you know, she had enough of a concern. I said, look, I'll, I'll call him. And, and I would call him and I would do the dad thing. And how are you? Oh, I'm fine. Dad works a bit. But, you know, whatever. Uh, and I go back and say, no, he seems absolutely fine. But what I didn't ask, as I know now, were the questions I probably should have asked. You know, I asked the dad type questions, you know, the how are you doing, how's work and, you know, things like that. And mm -hmm. often, you know, people said, does it get any easier? Does it get easier? Because right now I'm a year in or whatever. I just can't see it. Again, I can only ever talk from my perspective to say that the first anniversary of Jordan's death was awful. The second anniversary was even worse. And I think maybe that's because year one is about the trauma still. Year two is about the reality of now this is our life and this is what has happened and the permanence of it. The third anniversary was easier. It was it was lighter for us. Um, and life generally, you know, 90% um, of my days are – you know, doing the work that I do, very focused, but I can still laugh and watch television, go out and have a nice time and, you know, joke with family and friends. The thoughts of Jordan, the thoughts of what I do, the thoughts of his suicide and everything, they never, ever leave, ever. Um, but you, But it gets easier. So I say to people, what has helped me is having a purpose. Now, my purpose happens to be setting up a charitable organisation and focusing on suicide prevention. Yours doesn't have to be. Your purpose can simply say, I'm going to get out and go for a walk today and then doing that again and doing that again. But I think undoubtedly, and I think speaking to others as well, that it is so important to find some sense of purpose to keep you moving forward because without that, all you've got is... The suffering, I think, really. When we return, Steve Phillip talks about what he hopes will become a book, I Could Have Done More, and shares how you can do more to help people within your circle of need. Hi, this is Tony Chapman, host of the radio show and podcast, Chatter That Matters. Did you know that only one in five youth with a mental health illness can get access to the care they need? Well, a big shout out to the RBC Foundation and RBC Future Launch for supporting over 150 youth mental health organizations. And in doing so, they help youth and their families get the care they need and deserve. I have met during the last three and a half, four years now, through the work I'm doing, so many bereaved parents. There was an odd moment in this transition to the work with the Jordan Legacy where I went from being that person that everyone was reaching out to 
to say really sorry, Steve, for what you're going through, and you know, here, you know, can can I help in any way? And yet, as I started to grow through the Jordan legacy, and they often call it post-traumatic growth, is a term that's used quite a lot. There suddenly came a moment. I can't tell you when this was, what the date was, or anything like that. But a moment I can clearly recognise where I suddenly became that person reaching out to others with enough knowledge and experience to be able to offer some kind of perspective and solace or comfort or support and guidance, whatever you would call it. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman. My guest today is Steve Phillip, who lost his son, Jordan, when he took his own life. And Jordan was someone that was loved by many. From his pain has emerged a resolve to create a foundation to reduce, if not eradicate, suicide. I want to talk about the Jordan legacy, because as I've done this show and we're approaching 200 episodes, there's a couple of things that I've learned. And one, that almost every crisis that people have gone through, the people that come out of it have found a gift. As you call it a purpose, some people just call it a calling. And your calling is this Jordan legacy. And I want you to share how much your life has changed as the guy that was thinking about an exit strategy and, so, you know, landing the plane slowly into retirement to you're all in. Yeah, all in is a, is a, <laughs> I think a very apt description, really, because it is, it is pretty intense most, most days. I know my wife looks at me on occasions and there's that metaphorical wagging finger, uh, there, cause uh, it is, it, it's intense. Um, but I kind of made this commitment really early on that I wanted to do whatever I could do to, to have an impact, uh, in terms of reducing suicides so that other families didn't have to experience what we did. I, I really didn't know what that would look like. Um, I was pretty certain it wasn't going to be a, a kind of crisis center or a helpline. You know, there are lots of great organizations doing that. Um, and think what I started to reflect on were the skills and abilities that I had. I'd been a, a corporate speaker. I knew I, you know, I could stand on stage and speak. I, I knew I had certain skills with social media. Um, I knew I had a background in, in leadership and management and, and change management and transformational change, these kind of things. So I think I started to look at the, the skills that maybe had been preparing me. You know, that's been said before, maybe been preparing me for this moment to say, how can I adapt and use these? And and then through engagement and, and coming together with other people, it became very clear that what we were going to do was to treat suicide initially as a, as a practical act, which the act of suicide is. Um, it's very interesting when you hear coroners saying the cause of death was suicide. No, it wasn't. That was the means of death. What caused the suicide is what we're trying to deal with uh, here, from mental illness to socioeconomic challenges and other issues there. So we set about really looking at what it would take to prevent the practical act of suicide. And that led us to conversations with what's happening in workplaces at the moment, what's happening in our communities and our schools. From a practical sense, what's happening in the design and construction industry? You know, I'll give you an example there where architects and designers of buildings um, and policies within um, organizations will look at how they protect people from accidentally injuring themselves or falling out of a window. No one would ever have given any thought about how do we actually stop someone from deliberately trying to open that window and climb out and jump out of it. 
But now we're having these kind of conversations, looking at what are the practical solutions, things like the digital um, uh, and tech industries, you know, what is already out there that's working really well in terms of preventing suicide, but what more can be done? And that in turn uh, has, has led us over this two or three year journey to kind of where we are today with the Jordan legacy and, and where our focus is from 2023 onwards. And how do you find the time to do all of this? It's just Again, part of your therapy is the busier I am, the less I have to grieve. Is it, I mean, you've got some very bold statements. You want to get to this sort of eradicate suicide. You want to work with communities. You want to, I'm not saying that you're going to get there, but your goal is to really put a dent in this thing. Is there enough you to go around? Are you, are you finding ways to bring other people in that can claim this torch as well and run with it? Because when I look at your site and I look at your work and I look at your, a lot of it's very personal and coming from you. And you're going to have to be taking a lot of pain in to do that. I mean, it's, you're not just dealing with Jordan's suicide anymore. You're dealing with every day other Steve's out there and, and Sally's that are dealing with someone they've lost. Yeah, I mean, you're right. We, we're a very small organization. There's myself and my, my colleague, Paul Vittles, who joined me in the really early days here, who has extensive experience in suicide uh, prevention and very much my right-hand man. And there's my daughter, Danielle, who mentioned. You know, that's it. That's who we are. Um, but we do have a very large and wonderful extended network of people that we that we can draw on. Um, but I think it's not be, become lost on us at all recently that, you know, we are at risk of burnout ourselves if we continue to try and do everything ourselves. Um, so we can't continue as we are. We, we, we know that just physically and mentally you can't because, you know, we do this 100% of the time. You know, this is my day. This is my – any income we bring in, you know – pays my salary, which is nothing like it was in the consultancy business, but this is my job. You know, this is my career now, and there's no exit strategy planned uh, at all for this at the moment. Um, but we've, you know, we, we're at a fairly important moment, I think, in, in the Jordan Legacy's very short history, because when we reassessed what we were doing at the end of last year, we thought we've got this radio show that we we run. We, we have this annual conference called Hope for Life. We run all these online panel discussion events around suicide. We engage with the government. You know, we post and do everything we do on social media, a whole raft of things that, the, you know, the two and a bit of us kind of do here. Um, we looked and said, you know, again, what is our mission? What is it we really want to do? And, I, you know, I know you, you talked about making a dent in suicide. Well, all the research and all the evidence tells us that most suicides are preventable. And the word most is really important because that suggests that not all suicides are preventable. I think that's a really important message for all kinds of, of, of reasons. Um, uh, you know, that uh, people who are in, 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 in chronic pain who may just say, look, you know, there is no cure for this. And um, I kind of have a right to take my own life. Who, who are we to kind of argue and say that isn't the case? Um, so there are lots of circumstances and situations where a suicide is maybe inevitable, severe mental illness, for example, where, you know, we've heard doctors, you know, medical and mental health professionals tell families, it is inevitable that one day this is going to happen. So as tough as that message is to hear, and it is really hard to hear for people, we know that we cannot prevent every suicide. But what we do know, and a lot of this comes from the conversations with people who've attempted suicide and survived, is that most do not want to die. They simply want to rid themselves of either the physical or the mental pain that they're going through, which is a pain that 
for most of us that don't suffer with a mental illness could never contemplate experiencing. So that's where we're kind of starting from. The goal then is how do you, how do you make that, that dent? Well, you don't do it alone. You have to do it in, in collaboration with others. And so at the beginning of 2023, we, we started to go out and, and speak and have interviews with dozens and dozens of people from heads of charities to those working in government to mental health professionals to those working in first responder situations to those who'd lost loved ones to suicide, those working in education to people who had attempted suicide. We just went to a very wide and broad audience and, and really asked, asked them kind of two, two questions really. What is it going to take to significantly reduce the 6,000 plus suicides that we experience in this country, men, women, and children every year and have done for the past 15 years? And the second question, how far can we go? And this was the conversation that we've been having over the last several months that's led to, on July the 11th, Jordan's birthday this year, us publishing our first interim report, which has mapped out based on all these conversations and some broader conversations and all our events and our radio show and all this, this report maps out what we've called a future state map, a future desired state map. What everyone has told us that if we did all these things that need to be done in our government, in our healthcare system, in our schools, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our tech and digital spaces, if we did all these things, this is what a zero suicide society would look like. And just one final point on that, Tony. The definition of zero suicide is really important for anyone listening who maybe have heard this term or this maybe listening for the first time. The zero suicide community is born out of um, case studies from Detroit in 2004 to 2009, where in the Henry Ford Health Clinics, they did a study on people who were presented with mental health issues that went on to take their lives and put in place a framework that involved a large amount of community support as well, known as the suicide, zero suicide framework, ultimately, because the gradual reduction in suicides registered within the Henry Ford Clinic system there in 2009 got down to zero. And that framework has been used successfully in other parts of the world, um, quite often piloted in certain healthcare systems, but it's not being used as it should be right across the board in businesses and healthcare systems throughout our country. So, our goal, our definition of a zero suicide society is to say it's not a target. We can't eradicate it completely. Very simply, our definition of a zero suicide society is one in which everyone is willing and able to do all they can to prevent all preventable suicides. So, Steve, I want to close the show and talk about you again, because you've even said in an article that you've toyed with even writing a book called I could have done more. There's a lot of people listening that have someone in their circle or it might even be themselves that are suffering from mental health. And what can they do to do more now? One of the things we say a lot of the Jordan legacy is that everyone can play their part here in getting these numbers down. You know, a lot of people think, well, how, how you know, say to someone, we need to get the numbers down from 6,000. We need to get the numbers down from 700,000 globally. To most people in the street, they go, well, I can't, you know, what can I do in my little home or life that I have here? And, and when you present it that way, 
it's impossible. It's, it's an impossible thing to contemplate. But when you break it down into, you know, your school or your town or your community or your workplace, and even if you've not had experience of a suicide there, yet unfortunately many of those, you know, areas I've just talked about have had, and you put in place, but it's a zero suicide framework or a policy or a plan, but a plan of some kind to ensure that you created a psychologically safe environment where people felt listened to and felt they could open up and talk and they would be treated with respect and dignity and understanding. Um, and that if all those people within that small environment, whether this could be a house and a family right now, did the bare minimum of finding out how to spot the signs that someone may be struggling or even feeling suicidal, and then how to have a conversation with that loved one or colleague or whoever it may be to help them put a safety plan in place or just protect them. If we could all just do that, and you can go online here in, in, in the UK right now and, and worldwide, and there's the Zero Suicide Alliance here has free 20-minute online video on how to do everything I've just said. And and that's 20 minutes out, out of your life to go and watch a video that you don't know if tomorrow you're suddenly going to need to have that conversation with your partner, with your child, with someone at work or someone in the street. We can all do that. We, you know, we, we can all learn. You think about some of the things we've learned to do as human beings that are now part of our, our, our lives. But there'll be people listening to this saying, but, you know, what's the chances of being impacted by by suicide you know that i would need to go and get these skills well let's put this into perspective that when you ask people what do you think the biggest killer is of young people under 35 now do you think it's heart attack do you think it's diabetes do you think it's road traffic accidents do you think it's cancer you go through that list it could be any one of those of course but when you say to them it's suicide the biggest risk to young people now is that they need protecting from themselves. And when you hear it put like that, why aren't we as governments, as societies, as workplaces doing everything we can with some urgency right now to stop that from happening? Would you send, you know, would you go out with your family in your car today and not put a seatbelt on? Most of you wouldn't even contemplate doing that. So why wouldn't you have a safety plan just in case one day you need to have that conversation? My last question, if this is too personal, don't ask it, but has your spiritual beliefs changed since Jordan's took his life? Yeah, wow, that's a, that's a really important question. And it's a conversation that comes up a, a, a lot, uh, Tony, with different people. Um, and and um, I don't know if it's changed um, significantly, Um I'll answer it like this to say I'm not a religious person in, in, in any way, uh, shape or form, um, but I am open-minded and, and I will remain open-minded um, till things are proven to me or disproven either way, I suppose. So from a spiritual point of view, I, I cling on to, and maybe this is clinging on to as well, the, the, the hope that there is more beyond this life than we have today. I have no factual evidence to support that there is. Uh, I have no proof that there isn't either. So while that situation remains, I can remain open. And it's the reason why every morning um, 
you know, really pretty well since Jordan died. I come into this office and behind me are the photographs in a frame of Jordan and I on that trip in Italy. It's there, a montage of some dozen photographs. Each day before I start work, I go in and talk to Jordan, talk about it's Tuesday, sun shining, whatever else. This is what I've got on today. And I just kind of ask him to be with me and, and, um, you know, particularly if I've got a big event coming up or, uh, or speaking to you, Tony, something like that. And then at night before I go to bed, my wife knows, Jordan's stepmom knows that she's going to go up the stairs and I'm going to come back into my office and I'll, I'll have an end of day conversation with Jordan and I will do that every day. So if that answers your question, that's kind of where I'm at in, in that respect, really. It's among the most spiritual I've heard of anybody. Uh, you know, I always end with my three takeaways. And the first one is just this concept of busy and how we get so consumed by things that make us busy. And yet, you know, when you took time out and took them to Italy, hooting the blowfish, whiskey tasting, and the way you talk about it is that whatever darkness he was feeling, I think a, a Maybe a tiny pen light, maybe it was a spotlight, sounded like Italy shone for him. And he came back. And I think that is so magical that you have that. And the fact that you look at that picture every day it just shows you how wonderfully connected he felt to this planet at that moment. The second thing is this concept of cause and means. You know, when they say the cause of death is suicide, and you're saying, no, it was the means. I think it's so powerful for us to realize that. That was the means, the cause was mental health, it was depression, it was living on the street, it was addiction, it was whatever the, the reasons that are manifesting and they can be prevented. And I think what you're doing with the Jordan Legacy is really zeroing in on that. It's such an eye-opener for people that are listening, they know the people that are, in their life are struggling, understand the means. I feel for you. You have kept busy. You have shared, you've openly shared. Now you're the Yoda to help other people. And every day you're taking on other people's pain. It's almost like you're wearing a horsehair blanket all the time as your way of dealing with this. And I feel for you because I know what you're doing is so important. I know it's such an incredible calling. And I do hope there really are truly moments in your life where you can step away and be the Steve Phillip you were before that day because you deserve it. I think Jordan looking down or wherever he would be spiritually would say, hey, dad, same letter he wrote to Charlotte, you're going to be a great. He'd be saying the same thing to you is carry on. So Steve, for all those reasons and more, this has been one of the most emotional, one of the hardest things for me to keep together. But I am just so treasured and honored that you would share Jordan's legacy on uh, Chatter That Matters. Yeah, thank you, Tony. Really, really appreciate being able to share the story with you today. Thank you. It's Tony Chapman. Thanks for listening. And let's chat soon. Tony Chapman from Chatter That Matters. I asked Canadians about their money matters. We talked debt, inflation, interest rates, and many were worried and some felt they could lose everything. In response, RBC has created My Money Matters. It's a site where you gain financial knowledge. You learn how to manage debt, reduce stress. There's even tools and apps to help you deal with the realities of today. Visit rbc.com slash money matters. Your financial well-being matters to you and to RBC. RBC.